Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. That's the young people from uh, Lancome from the album The Live Long Day. You'll know I've been playing that uh, that record a lot during the weekday shows and um, this on the Sunday night when we get someone in to pick the music. I'm delighted to say that tonight we do have someone to pick the tunes instead of me and it's Ian Lynch from Lancome. Ian, great to have you here. Hello, thanks for having me, John. Yeah, it's great. Now we had Rady in here, Rady Pete from the band, maybe three years ago now. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. And uh, she was good, so no pressure on you oh, no. to be, uh, to be equally <laughs> good. To. So uh, first of all, congratulations on all this stuff because th- this particular album, um, the last one was good, but I think you've moved on to a whole other, on a whole other place. Do you do you have a sense of that as well with this record? Um, yeah, well, I mean, we've we've obviously all been blown away about how well it's been received. But even before that, I mean, when we were in the studio working on it, I think we were we were all kind of aware of the fact that we were tapping into something yeah. different altogether. You know. And that's why I'm I'm very interested in the music you're going to pick tonight because it's it's obvious to anybody listening to this Lancome record that what you've brought into the mix of singing these songs are influences that wouldn't have been around years ago. There's more contemporary. Well, it's not necessarily contemporary, but there's there are sounds from different types of music yeah. that the old traditional singers would never have heard. And it's not just you haven't just rocked them up. You haven't just put a drum on. In some cases, you don't do that at all. Yeah. But you've been listening to, I would imagine, you know, Mogwai and, you know, death metal and everything is in there. All and, kinds of stuff. Yeah. And is that my imagination or is that, is that could you actually pinpoint, yes, the, all these musics are in there somewhere? Um, I mean, yeah, maybe not. If I listen back to the album, I couldn't say where exactly where each sound comes from. But yeah, I know I'm quite aware of the fact that, um, you know, these things don't come out of nowhere, you know, mm. and whatever kind of musical palette you've built up over the years that's what you're drawn from whenever you do go to make music so it's it's kind of an unavoidable thing you know and I guess between the four of you there is yeah there's a lot of stuff there's a big hinterland of music there there is yeah and a lot of a lot of differences as well you know there's there's definitely stuff that I'd be into that other people wouldn't be into and vice versa so you know it all all kind of comes into the mix sometimes easier than other ways (laughs) well tell me a little bit about your own background first of all Ian where are you from exactly uh, I grew up out in Baldoyle, yeah, on the north side, yeah. Um, lived out there my whole life. Kind of left school when I was eighteen, and then moved away, moved away to England. Was travelling around Europe for a bit, and then coming back to Ireland in my twenties. And when you left, was that to work? 
Um, oh, not exactly to work. I mean, uh, I was kind of traveling around and busking and stuff like that. You know, kind of living. In a, that's work. And kind of rough and ready kind of way. <laughs> Seems like hard work now looking back yeah. at it, but I didn't see it that way. But you way. weren't off to the building sites or anything like that. Well, I, yeah, I went to have an, an, an uncle living over in London. That's where I went first. Yeah. It was all where he's, uh, you know, beyond sites building and dec uh, painting and decorating. I was doing that for a while and then I kind of vagrancy kind of took over. I got the itchy feet and I ended up kind of just traveling around Europe and that. And did you skip um, further education? No, I went back when I was, I went to college when I was about 25. Yeah. Then uh, ostensibly just to stay on the dole, but uh, I ended up really liking it. Ended up doing a master's there and then ended up lecturing there just down the road in UCD. And what was the master's in? It was Irish folklore. Mm. Yeah, so I was looking at um, like narratives and kind of folk legends about the widow's curse. That was what the thesis was all about. Um, not really, wasn't really much about music in it at all, but uh, yeah. And are you still lecturing at UCD? Because I know the band is now extremely busy. Yeah, I was up to a point up until about um, three years ago. I had to stop. Um, I think the last year I did it, I was quite aware that I wasn't really able to put as much energy into that as I should have been. And I also wasn't putting as much energy into the band. So I was like, right, academia's not going anywhere. Well, that uh, that uh, time you spend in academia and the f I mean, it continues in a way for you as a, as a song collector and all the rest of it. Where did that come from, do you think? Was that in your family? Um, no, not really, no. Um, I mean, I've got, you know, my Uncle Tommy who sings and writes songs and stuff like that. And, you know, there would have been singing in the family, but not really, no special interest in traditional songs or anything like that. And uh, definitely not in the in the background behind them or the kind of academic side. I think that's something I probably picked up on through, you know, like you pick up Planksy records or old Sweeney's Men records or whatever and you're reading, they have the kind of backgrounds to mm -hmm. the songs and stuff like that. I think I first became aware that there was kind of this kind of research being done and I kind of just found myself, I was just very kind of drawn towards that side of things, you know, the songs and where they came from, where they were collected, who sang them, who taught those people the songs, how they changed going from person to person, you know, mm. and was finding out that there was actually, like there's a whole kind of um, academic scene who are, are all into this, you know, just as much as I was. So that was a bit of a revelation, yeah. Well, we start off with the music that you're going to choose tonight Ian and uh, we'll, we'll get into this uh, in much more depth how you I'd love I'm just very curious to know how a bunch of young musicians end up making this amazing record you know and I guess we might get some clues to it in the music that you pick some of them won't be relevant at all I guess yeah. but some of them yeah, some we'll of them see. will be so uh, you want to kick off with uh, Shannon and the Clams what can you tell me about Shannon and the Clams well, Shannon and the Clams yeah they're a band who are playing around now I don't know if they've ever been to Ireland but I know they played in England about two years ago um, have some friends who went to see them but um, yeah contemporary band they're a very uh, just a really great kind of 50s sound you know really great songwriting really really catchy kind of upbeat stuff but um like I, I don't know I just I just really enjoy the fact that they are very probably in the same way that I am quite like I like nerding out on traditional stuff they probably be the same way about 50s music and that's something that I definitely had growing up in you know just as a kid when my parents listened to you know like the Ronettes or yeah. um, the, the Penguins and all that kind of stuff you know so the Penguins been, yeah Great. yeah Earth that Angel yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. That would have been something that I was was around me, you know, growing up. So I think that's that's definitely a sound that they're drawn on. Um, and another fact about them that I really like, they come from a kind of a, a DIY background. So that's always a plus in my book. Shannon and the Clams. Yeah.
Shannon and the Clams, a track called The Boy. The first choice tonight of Ian Lynch from Lancome. Ian's my guest tonight. He's picking all the music. So, Ian, let's go back to Baldoyle. You're in the kitchen and you're listening to, well, the originals of that kind of music and you're listening to the Ronettes and all that kind of stuff. Was this music that your parents were into or was it older brothers or what? Uh, it's stuff that my parents would have been into amongst other things. Um, I think, you know, like I was saying there, they wouldn't never have any great interest. Like nobody in my family would have a great interest in traditional songs or music over any other types but uh like i you know i'd remember like my my dad singing these kind of songs to my ma when we were young you know because they loved singing and they'd be always like just singing to themselves and to each other around the house so that was definitely something that you know we had around and us. would you would you call your dad a singer was he a good singer Had oh, he, he, is, voice? Yeah, yeah. he sings he does a great gene pitney yeah <laughs> that's not so easy that gene <laughs> no, pitney no no he does he, uh, backstage is one of his favorites wow so he does all, all the stuff at the end and all you know it really and your, da- your dad's a taxi driver. He, he is, he's, yeah, v- yeah. he's very proud of Lancome, we know this. From, he is, absolutely. From yeah, various all the gigs. anecdotes of trapped passengers in the back. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk, talking about how great Lancome are. But it's yeah. great to see that. And your ma, what did she do? Um, she was working in Superquin yeah. for years up in Sutton. Yeah, yeah. She really enjoyed that. And was she a singer too? Um, ma, she'd have a few songs now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But Gene Pitney, you know, if your dad can sing Gene Pitney, we probably should have him in here instead of you. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get him in next time. <laughs> So, you know, you were exposed to a fair amount of music, but it was it was democratic. There was no particular kind of music being shoved down your throat or anything. No, 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 yeah. not at all. Right. Not at all. And even when I started to get into, like, you know, I got into, maybe we'll get into this in a while, but when I started getting into stuff like Iron Maiden and that, like, I, I, and I was quite young, you know, because I was eight years old when I got my first Iron Maiden album. And you were eight? I was eight years old, yeah. My parents were very kind of open to it. You know, I remember my ma brought me into HMV on Henry Street and she bought a Number of the Beast for me. Well, that's interesting at that age because, I mean, I must be a bit older than you, but I remember when, when people my age started discovering those sorts of heavy metal bands, it was stuff you kind of kept away from your parents because, well, the imagery was all a bit scary. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was a... And then there was a lot of women with big hair and spandex trousers and all the rest of it. And it all seemed a bit sort of verboten or a bit sort of... Um, you just kept it to yourself. Yeah, the, the yeah. amongst amongst yourselves, the the heavy metal thing, but it seemed to appeal to, you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year old boys, not eight year olds. No, so what no. did you what did you like about Iron Maiden at the age of eight? So by the age of eight, I remember I, I was already listening to like Def Leppard was a band that I come across, um, Def Leppard, Guns N' Roses, ACDC. But to me, like I used to see the uh, Iron Maiden artwork, you know, and see Eddie and that, and I'd be like just really kind of transfixed by it because you know I was into. Um, would have been into like Dungeons and Dragons and like fantasy game books and stuff at that yeah. age, you know. So like to me, the Iron Maiden imagery really spoke to me. And uh, I remember I said to my cousin one time, I was like, oh, will you please just record me an Iron Maiden album, you know, tape us an Iron Maiden album. So did you say to your mother, I want I want the new Iron Maiden album? Well, I see, I was already into them at that stage. And I had to say thanks now to my cousin Neil because he um got he, he gave me a tape of Seven Son of Seven Son. And so I'd been listening to that for a good few months. And then I asked my ma, yeah, to buy me Number the Beast in yeah. town. And, you know, I, th- I think she probably had some reservations, but she went for it anyway. And uh, I remember my dad saying, oh, you know, we should sit down and listen to this stuff one time. He was going, did you, I heard you got an album in town today. I was going, yeah, it's called Number the Beast. And he was going, oh, and what is the Number the Beast? And I was like, 666. Six, six. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and that was definitely one kind of musical event in my life that really, it brought me off on a 
the tangent that I'm on now with like Iron Maiden I reckon that was definitely a turning point I think we should get the Iron Maiden track out of the way I think so I yeah I wasn't as, planning as, on going as, into that as, there but as, you know so, no I think we should get, yeah, yeah. get, get it done and dusted uh, what are we going to hear um, Seven Son of a Seven Son and what period is this that album. that's like uh, 1988 <laughs> what period <I> but <laughs> who's, who's the singer in this um, Bruce Dickinson was Bruce the singer Dickinson, so yeah. this is kind of this album would be my cut off point for Maiden I'm not really interested in that that came after that so yeah. this is like their seventh studio album before we hear it right what was it appeal to you about the sound of Iron? Apart from the imagery, you know, which appeals to young fellas, I know at that age. But yeah. but but the the the, uh, the actual sound of it, there were there were the bass player was an extraordinary. Oh, Steve Harsher, he wrote most of the yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, as an older person, I listen to the Iron Maiden now and think it's kind of ridiculous. It is. It's very over the top. It's very like bombastic. It's like oh, you know, like kind of opera. Like it is. I mean, it's it's over the top music. But I remember hearing it first and just being really taken aback by the musicality of it because, you know, everything you hear about like heavy metal at that stage, you hear your answer, ah, Jesus, that's not proper music at all, you know. But I remember listening to this album and just being like, no, there's actually, there's real like musicality behind it, there's real catchy bits and I just really got into the groove of it, you know, like, yeah. All right, stand well back, folks. And that's uh, Iron Maiden, choice of Ian Lynch, is with me tonight in studio. You could talk about that kind of music for a long time, you know, because the closest music I can think, you know, there's people out there probably going, oh, no, God, I can't stand that kind of But yet, classical music is, this, I, I, is the closest to that. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Over Absolutely. the top, bombast, mm. you know? Yeah. Opera? Nonsense? Nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Being the operative word, yeah. But of course, at, 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 at that age, I can't I'm wondering at eight years old what you made of this, you know? I suppose it was just energy, was it? Was it... Um I mean, I was, it's, to me, it was like, as I was saying, I was like really kind of into D&D and stuff at the time. So it's it a lot of the, the themes and it's got these kind of like archetypal and mythological themes going on in that album, you know, where it's a song about clairvoyant. There's a song about like the fool. There's a song about like the seventh son of a seventh son. Yeah, but so you're eight. I, yeah, I was eight, you know, so, but, you know, I was more probably looking at the, the names of the albums or the songs and. Yeah. And has this, has this uh, interest in, in, in metal and so on, has that stayed with you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a metal band going until until like you know uh, Lynch or Lancome kind of started going seriously. I had this uh, had a metal project going, but uh, it kind of I found it too hard physically, and I was just shredding my voice up the whole time as well. So, wow. I had to, yeah. It, what what is it about? There's there's a lot of classical musicians and a lot of metal musicians who seem to want to be each other in ways. You know, you get classical violinists who love to put on leather trousers and and, and shred the violin, and then you get these kind of metal bands who really want to play with orchestras mm. and Metallica and these sorts of people you know there's, there's definitely some connection there yeah 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 well I think I mean the, the two the two forms I think they, they go quite closely together you know I think the forms that metal is drawn on probably come from like classical music more than anywhere else yeah especially the solos the over the top oh, yeah. shredding yeah. Uh, your next choice the cooperators the cooperators tell me about this one now this is a, a great band they're around at the moment Um. They're based around Bristol, but I think a good few of them are from further north, like around Manchester. 
that kind of area. But um, yeah, band they got uh, just a very authentic kind of like early ska sound that I really appreciate. Um, where years ago I used to have this compilation tape, and I had like on one side I had this old ska stuff, and the other side Christy Moore, and I, for some reason it fit well together. Um, so it was like I think it was called Intensified. It was like ska back from the sixties, mm -hmm. and it was really good stuff. And to me, a lot of the sounds that this uh, band makes that kind of go harks back to that kind of uh, just a very kind of airy kind of rough and ready ska sound really appreciate it Cooperators there, Murder at Midnight. Uh, Ian Lynch is with me in studio, in from Lancome. Uh, you know, that the sound of that was so refreshing after the Iron Maiden, really, yeah. wasn't it? Palette <laughs> 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 cleanser. Really, <laughs> cleanser. Thank you for that. So, um, okay, you're an eight-year-old metal fan, and you never lost that. And when you got older, you'd, you did form a metal band. Um, but again, when do you think, uh, was there a particular age you can pinpoint when the, the, an interest in the songs and the Irish songs? started to uh, really get a hold of you um well like i said there were there was something that i had been aware of from a young age here and just like family members singing them but it wasn't it wasn't something i really um like had an explicit interest in until mm -hmm. like much later probably when i was like 16 or 17 mm -hmm. and like i was saying i had a tape with christy moore on one side and ska stuff on the other side um, I was listening to the Pogues a bit. I started developing an interest in the Dubliners and things like that. But, I, you know, I wasn't really going mad looking into it. But uh, it was like really probably, and this is the same, I think, for a lot of people. When I moved away from Ireland for the first time, I was living over in London. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, the music took on a whole a whole new aspect. And um, what, what was that beyond homesickness, I guess? Or? Um, I think it was just down to homesickness, really. That was the main thing. Um, there was another aspect to it where I was that's when I started kind of busking you know I had a tin whistle and I was like well I have to figure out a way of making money mm. I think uh, I'd rather be you know playing a tin whistle than selling the big issue and uh, I yeah just started learning the tunes from songs and tapes I had it was around then I got my first uh, Planksty tape off somebody as well so I just kind of started getting heavily into that it's, it's interesting that because you know the impression you get between the music you've recorded and what you've written and the fact you've lectured on this is that you were sort of steeped in this music and your family has been for generations. <laughs> and, you know, you discovered the music the same way I did on yeah. Planksy Records and so yeah, on. Yeah. You know. um, did you know you could sing? Did you know you had that, that in you? Not really. I mean, I, I'd, I'd been singing in bands. You know, I've been playing in bands since I was like 14 or so, you know. Um, and I, I think... Just by defect, I'd ended up doing vocals in some of those bands, but I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have... Um, yeah, but taking on a... Take, you know, getting up and pretending to be, you know, pretending to be Phil Leinert or pretending to be somebody in a rock band at school is one thing, but taking on a ballad like that, you know, you can't... Yeah. There's no messing around there. It's not, it has to be more than an affectation, I think. Yeah, it? well, I, I think it definitely took a long time before I got to anywhere, mm. anywhere close to that, yeah. And how did you go on that particular journey to, to being a singer of those ballads? Um, I 
I think it was just I like maybe in my twenties, you know, getting a kind of a, an interest to finding out more about the tradition. You know, it's I um picked up the pipes, started going to lessons when I was about twenty five or twenty six. So I would have started getting heavily into the instrumental music around that stage. Again, very late, isn't it? Very late, yeah, yeah. I mean, before that, I wouldn't have known. I could, wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference between a jig or a reel. You know, really? I was like, really, yeah, yeah. Like everybody else, you know, when I listened to traditional instrumental music, I'd have been like, oh, it all sounds the same to me. You know, yeah, it's it's great, but yeah, it all sounds the same, and I just didn't know much about it at all. So it was something I I kind of just became obsessed with at a certain stage of my life, and I yeah, I kind of just got really really deep into it very quickly. And do you? Do you feel that because of that, you're not quite the same as, as Liam O'Flynn or, you know, one of these guys who did grow up literally, you know, uh, yeah. playing, playing well, from they could walk? Yeah, for a long time, I think I kind of wished that I was from one of those families yeah. where, you know, I had been learning from a very young age and yeah. been forced to go to lessons at the age of six or whatever. But um, I think only now and in recent years, I've kind of started to appreciate the fact that I haven't and I have maybe just a more... I don't know, more peculiar musical outlook than yeah. I might have if that was the case, you know. And in terms of ability as well, do you do you feel as a result of, you know, coming to it late and so on, do you feel that you have certain limitations as a musician, but uh, but limitations that actually serve the music really well, if you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 um, absolutely. And I think maybe that's maybe kind of one of the reasons why we kind of go for a more minimal approach to the music at times you know yeah. in our arrangements with songs and stuff like that and then um, you know that's i kind of favor that ideologically but it also works well practically too it does. you know i mean you wouldn't be the first i remember elvis costello talking about some of their early hits he said the reason we sounded that way is that was us trying to sound like a motown record but we weren't we couldn't do it yeah. Do you know, and we yeah, actually yeah. we ended up creating a sound of our own because yeah. of the fact, because of limitations, they actually come up with something brilliant. Yeah. So it, it can work. And actually, really, on this program as well, I was reading to, back to her the list of instruments she was playing on the last album. And I said, well, you know, can you play X, Y and Z? Or, you know, where did you learn? She said, well, I can't really play it, but I have one. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I, you know, I can make noises on it. You yeah, know? yeah. It's a good approach. Um, Tommy Lynch. Tell me about Tommy Lynch. Tommy Lynch. Um, I think now looking back at him he's my dad's brother by the right. way my dad's older brother um, I think probably one of my uh, greatest musical influences in life um, he would have played a lot at the kind of at family gatherings and stuff you know I remember he you know he'd sing songs he played guitar and he'd sing songs and all my cousins knew all the words and we'd all sing along with them and it'd be great and I'd com- come back into school on Monday and I'd be like oh you know do you know this song and I'd kind of sing bits and pieces from the songs and no one would know what I was talking about and it, it only dawned on me like that uh, he, uh, you know, uh, after a while that he'd actually written all the songs himself <gasps> and he'd written all these really like fantastic songs but never, I mean I don't think he's ever played a gig. We've gotten up and up on stage once or twice with us you know but um, he's never, uh, you know never, he just wrote music, to, wrote love songs to his wife Terry and wrote songs to sing at, you know to the family and just for the crack you know. But uh, really, like I think so, he's a really great songwriter, great and singer. Tell me about this song we're going to play. So this song is called, um, he calls it Arida, or the Mantelpiece song. Um, and where the, the name Arida comes from, he said that, um, so he used to talk about like, my granddad's generation. Like, so he would, you know, would have been born, I think, the early kind of 20th century. Um, and men of that age, he said that um, when they were singing, you know, they had a real tenor kind of thing going on and they used to stand up. He called it mantelpiece songs. They used to like put their hand on the mantelpiece, oh, yeah. you know, while they were singing. Um, 
And he said, no, you know, no matter what song they were singing, they used to always put on Italian accents. <laughs> so uh, he's like, they'd never been near Italy in their life. But, you know, they swear they were from Rome or something when they were singing. And so the first line in the song is, um, yours are the arms that I was needing. But, you know, he said, you sing like, yours are the arms I was needing. So the song, uh, Arida, that's where the name comes from. Tommy Lynch, your uncle. That's the, that's the best thing we've had on the show in a long time. That's your Uncle Tommy. I would like to hear that now, yeah. Your Uncle Tommy Lynch. Uncle Tommy Lynch, yeah. His own song. His own song. And he calls it Arada. Arada, Arada or the Mantelpiece Arada, song. The Mantelpiece song. That's amazing, that. That's just great, actually, isn't it? Yeah, no, yeah, I love it. It really is. So, um, so that was in your background as well, that kind of parlour song, John McCormick kind of thing. Yeah, that yeah, was there absolutely, too. yeah. And... It seems to me that that you guys, speaking for all of Lancome now, didn't didn't get too tribal about traditional music as to what what it was. Now I remember when I and I am older than you, but I remember, you know, being really into the Bothy band and Planksty and groups like that, and a lot of other stuff was kind of not so cool, corny even. Do you know that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you never seem to have any hang-ups about that that music at all. You saw you found the good in it, yeah, and represented the stuff, yeah, and. Uh, where where were you hearing all those songs, um, and in what context were you hearing them um, that the rest of us were somehow missing? I think I'm not sure. I I would have had um, you know a lot of friends who were listening to that kind of stuff when I was younger. Just people who were you know they'd be pretty much all hardcore punk. But you know when they got to a certain stage of being drunk, be the Dubliners would come out and that kind of yeah. thing. You know. Um, and I suppose it is, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I was aware of, you know, how it was viewed by other people. The fact it was a cheesy aspect to it. Some of the recordings are kind of just bad, not produced very well. Um, but um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I have sometimes have soft spots for things, you know. And yeah. I, you know, I can see, just see the, the I suppose, the, the musical goodness in them like you said you know and that's it doesn't really deter me that but you see the academic side of it in you and the fact you're a, you're a song collector and you know about the history of songs I mean let's take an example your version of The Wild Rover mm. when I pick up your album see you've recorded The Wild Rover my first reaction is oh god we don't need another version of The Wild Rover yeah. please but you've again it's, a, it's like a completely different song yeah so tell me a little bit maybe about that song and you know what your approach was to it and what you what you found out about it yeah, well, um, the Wild Rover, like, I just remember having kind of just being blown away when I came across this version of the song and just heard it being approached in such a way. Um, and kind of, that's, you know, it's all part of kind of realising that there's often very many different versions of these songs and just be kind, because one version of the song has gained ascendancy, as it were, you know, because it's obviously, the, it's the Luke Kelly version, Dubners, that's the big hit that came out mm. in the 60s, you know, it was in the charts for a while, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it was number one, but, you know, it was kind of um, in that territory that that kind of just took over from all the other versions that would have existed out in the wild at a certain stage, and now that's the version of the song that people associate it with, you know. Um, but then the version that people know is, is one that has been sung in pubs 
you know, by drunk yeah. people yeah. Um, for years since the, so it, the song has transformed into something else again. And now when I hear it in a pub, I kind of don't hear it at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you wouldn't really pay much attention to yeah. it at all. I mean, it's like, I know there's, I think there's a really nice Frank Hart quote about this kind of thing where he says, you should never judge a song by the company that it keeps, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, just because a song has become like hackneyed or overdone or, you know, it's been kind of not treated very carefully, it's, it's you know, it's no reason to hold that against the song itself. Um, like I, there's a recording of Frank Hart on YouTube singing Molly Malone, like perhaps the most hackneyed yeah. of any Irish song ever. It's hard to believe that anybody would, you know, approach that in a kind of musically sensitive way. But I swear it is a such a lovely version of Molly Malone, and he he kind of sings it and like it's it's a lot slower and it's just a lot more pensive. And the, there's like a few hundred people joining in with him in the chorus, and it's a really really beautiful. Like you'd never thought you would have heard a beautiful rendition of Molly Malone, but. It's it's something else. And I think that really like taught me a lesson, you know. But I think that's a big part of the success of Lancome is that, you know, you've you've uh, reminded a lot of people what's there, and you've, and a lot of a lot of people, fortunately, are coming to the music for the first time through you. They haven't heard the kind yeah. of hackneyed versions of some of these songs. Yeah. Now, not all of them. I mean, the Wild Rovers there, but there are other songs too. Uh, like, but for instance, the Pride of Petrovor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I hear oh, per, you know. when I hear the word. When in Percy French, I run a mile because I associate that with the fish. I associate it with 500 girls singing Phil the Fluter's Ball yeah. over and over again. And as a kind of a stage Irish kind of a thing. No, you know? absolutely. And I, and I get that. And I think maybe a part of it is being like going, OK, well, you know, as, as Irish people, we've as much of a, a right to this music as anybody else has, you know. And we don't want maybe in some cases, you don't want the, the songs being treated in the way they are. I think it's you know it's valid that anybody can have their own interpretation of the way they should be. Do you mind if you play a bit of the Pride of Petrovor? Not at all. No, it's a happy. great it's a great tune. It's a traditional tune, though, isn't it? It is. I, it was a traditional tune before Percy French put the words to it, as far as mm. I know. Um, I haven't been able to ascertain the actual name. It was a hornpipe, it's, and it's still played as a hornpipe. And um, people call it now. They call the hornpipe the Pride of Petrovor. But I've no idea what it was called before and that. Would you, at any stage in your life, have had, you know? When you'd hear Percy French, for for instance, uh, I know he's extremely popular, but I mean, when you're into the Bothy band, Percy French seems like not what you want. Yeah. You know? um, were you always open to John McCormick, to Percy French, to, to all the different aspects of Irish music, even the stuff that was being sidelined? Yeah, no, uh, uh, to be honest, like when I, when I was a teenager, it would have made me quite sick. <laughs> <laughs> like all of it, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, all like, of it, yeah. I mean, not not so much the Dubliners and stuff, but maybe the more I don't know, it's, it's the more kind of conservative side of it. Yeah. I mean, as a you know, kind of teenage punk rocker, like I was, like, no, that's I'm against all that, like intrinsically, you know, and not into it at all. But um, you know, luckily I'm not 16 anymore. And <laughs> let's hear a bit of this. Patrick Fitzgerald, Live Out My Stars, before that, uh, 
the pride of Petrovor from uh, Lancome from the Live Long Day. Ian Lynch from Lancome is with me in the studio picking all the music tonight, although I picked the pride of Petrovor. Um, <laughs> tell me about Patrick Fitzgerald. So Patrick Fitzgerald has been around since, uh, like, you know, the original punk days of 1977, um, you know, so-called punk poet. Um, he was quite prolific um, back then. He, um, he First generation out. Irish, you reckon? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he played over here. We actually played with him in the Cobblestones about eight years ago. Oh, yeah. He was over here, still playing around. Um, and just really, like, amazing songwriter. Yeah. Would you have, you would have come across him in London then for the first time, yeah? Um, no, no. I actually, it was before that, yeah. I think I was about 16 or 17. Somebody passed on a tape. Right. Um, you know, 90-minute tape, just a compilation of all his stuff. And I think it's because, I mean, the stuff I was listening to of his at the time, it was just him and an acoustic guitar and kind of that's I kind of you know first realised he could be making kind of it's powerful music with just you know very kind of minimal instrumentation um, and I think that that's kind of one of my main influences for starting like Lynched with Dara then a few years later yeah and when you started Lynched with Dara your brother um, did you feel you were striking out very much on your own or did you have other compadres, other people listening to this kind of music or were you, you know, in somewhat, in isolation somewhat maybe? Um, yeah, I, I remember feeling at the time it was very much just the two of us. Mm. I think um, most people didn't really get what we, where we were coming from or what we were trying to do at the time. You know, we people used to put us on bills with like, you know, at punk gigs and people would be just kind of sneering at you on what you're doing calling you a hippie for playing a tin whistle and an acoustic guitar and yeah. things like that, you know, but I, we kind of enjoyed that. And I mean, well. it, I mean, maybe it's just lazy journalism, but anytime anybody writes about Lancome or Lynch back then, it was always, you know, they bring the punk thing into traditional music. Yeah, and all. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean, if anything? Um, I don't know. I suppose they're, they're coming from, I mean, I used to talk a lot in early interviews about the kind of similarities that I saw between, you know, kind of DIY punk and traditional music sessions and, kind of like protest music, you know, yeah. seeing folk as another form of protest music and yeah. that kind of thing. And it's a good friend of yours, Eliza Carthy, who was on this programme, she was talking about um, that her father, Martin Carthy, said the biggest mistake that the folkies in England made was keeping the punks out of the clubs. Yeah. When in fact they were kindred spirits, you know. Yeah, they yeah. They were doing the same thing, but they kept them out. Yeah. Was a, there was a mistake there, I think. So what was what was the reaction then? You mentioned that some of the guys at the punk gigs were looking at you going, who are you with your tin whistle? Yeah. But what about the trad crowd? What did they make of you? Oh, we wouldn't really have had any interaction with the trad crowd back then. You know, we were kind of totally alien. I used to go into the cobblestones sometimes to listen to people playing, but, you know, I wouldn't have been sharing the, the CD we made around that kind of crowd at all, you know. I just wouldn't have gone there. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was you know, at, at that stage, it was like, they're all songs we'd written ourselves. Um very very like rough pretensions towards anything really traditional or kind of uh, folky about it but um, yeah I wouldn't, wouldn't have gone there <laughs> and when when did you end up basically being the Lancome that we know today when did that happen you You're know with the people who were in the yeah, band yeah. yeah that would have been about um, about eight years ago right yeah and who was the you know what what made the what made the difference? Do you think was there one individual member that made it? Was it radio appearing on the scene that sort of solidified things? Or, um, I think it was it was basically like Rady and Cormac coming on boards. Yeah. Um, you know, and they had a slightly different background to you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They quite a different background. They they, they knew their onions at that point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very much coming from um, you know, a proper traditional yeah. background. Yeah. 
which uh, which we we thought was great. You know, that's that's really what we wanted at the time. And really, would have been singing in the cobblestone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. It's an interesting way that, that 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 you met. So it's not it's not that typical of of what you might call a, a trad group. But then maybe you never even think of yourselves. You didn't then when you started out. Yeah, so it's yeah. hard to know. But it's it it explains how you ended up sounding the way you do. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think it all it all plays into it. The 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 whole story so far, Ian, is that that you had no particular grounding or interest in Irish music at all. No. And, and <laughs> Still don't. So what are, you, what are you doing on my show? And, and then, you, you know, you learned the pipes at 24, 25 yeah. and all the rest of it. When did you start? The, now, I'm looking at a lovely booklet here that came with some of the albums, um, stories of the songs. And you, it's a lovely produced thing and you, you talk about different songs and you give details as to where they came from. And I see all the, the collection history of songs in here um, you know the, the Gypsy Laddie English and Scottish popular ballads and then you'll see references to uh, Cahill McConnell Joe Holmes Hugh Shields people like that this is serious collector stuff you know and collecting when did that begin for you? Um, it probably would have been a result of kind of like doing the chorus out in UCD and doing the folklore chorus um, there was when I was doing my degree there was um, quite a bit about um, music and song song collecting and stuff like that and um, like I was saying I would have been aware before that from reading like the backs of like old trad records and stuff um, but yeah I was, I was really like doing that course out there that kind of cemented my um, interest in that side of things and there's a word you use here There's a, in this booklet that you've written uh, you, you've written quite a bit of it and there's a word here called Mondegreen Mondegreen yeah, I've never heard yeah. that word before what is that? Mondegreen is a misheard lyric in a song so like you know, um, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Yeah, <laughs> all those yeah. kind of ones. That's yeah, that's what scholars call them. A mondegreen. Um, it comes from there's a ballad and there was uh, somebody singing. Um, you know there was a fair lady upon the green and somebody thought it was mondegreen or some something along those oh, lines. Right. But yeah, it comes from a kind of a scholarly background anyway. The term, but I think that's the one that's widely used today. Yeah, it's an endless. A subject to get into, isn't it? You I know, think so. I mean, yeah, even it seems like a, even if you were just working with, with the songs of Bob Dylan, it would keep you going for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know where yeah. they where they all came from. But you've got you know stuff here about the child ballads and all the rest of it. Um, the thing is, these are very very old songs. Some of them, yeah, really old, absolutely, yeah. And they don't sound old. They what, don't know what's all that about. Um, well, I think they're they're kind of. They're pieces of art that have been continually worked and reworked, you know, as, you know, there's this kind of idea that traditional singers in the past, especially, they were kind of, they weren't artists or they weren't aware of what they were doing, yeah. you know, they were kind of just repeating these songs without even thinking about what they were doing. But that's, I don't think it's the case at all. I think there's very definite conscious artistry going on. And if you think about that fact that as the songs are going from one person to another, they're constantly being refined and polished up in different yeah. ways. So what we're getting now after generations of these songs is something that's very much distilled. And and they know. could evolve into something very, very different if they're yeah, passed absolutely. on from one person to the next. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's, you know, folklorists and that and scholars, they've looked at ways that if there's a part of a song that doesn't make sense to people or if it doesn't fit in anymore they're going to forget about that line or that verse they're not going to continue singing it they're mm. only con con going to continue singing what really means something to them so a lot of songs have been just kind of reduced down to their emotional core over the years and just the really good bits are, wh are what's left behind you know or have been transformed because you make the point in this that the Wild Rover which we consider a drinking song mm. was actually a, a temperance song in a yeah, way it was, it was an anti-drinking song yeah don't drink first. yeah 
a warning song. Yeah. It seems to be something that people are missing out on. Yeah. And when, you, and when you think about it, it is, obviously. Yeah. 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 But then you don't think about it because well, you're, ha- cause you're hammered. Yeah, like everybody else, yeah. <laughs> your your uh, next choice is uh, Oh Low. Right. I, now, I have often on the radio show during the week played a track from you and a track from Low side by side, run the two of them together. Ah, oh, okay, Because yeah. I can hear similarities in the yeah, way, they, yeah. in the way they, they approach the music. When you were putting together the, when you were developing the sound of Lankin with the drones and the, the organ and the big deep bass that's on there, a lot of bottom, were you thinking of those bands like Low and Mogwai and others? No, to be honest, I'd never heard of Low until about uh, two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it You're was a terrible disappointment to me. Oh, you know, sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, Low, uh, Spud, our sound manager, he put me on to Low and he was like, yeah, you're really going to love this band. Well, we're going to talk about Spud after the break. Okay. Now, Ian, you said you didn't know the music of Low until a few years ago, but that, that could be Lancome. It really could. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's it. But there's definitely, this, there are sonic similarities there. And yeah, you know, I think so. And I think that's a lot of the new crowd that have come to your music have probably come from there. And they, they respond, respond sure, to it. Yeah, right? yeah. We're going to take a, a quick break and we'll be right back. Ian Lynch from Lancome is with me in the studio tonight. He's picking all the tunes. We'll be right back. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special. The night we get someone in to pick the tunes. Tonight is Ian Lynch from Lancome, and uh, we've been having a fine time. We've had uh, Shannon and the Clams, the Cooperators, Tommy Lynch, uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, Lowe and Iron Maiden. That's a night out, if ever there was one. <laughs> if ever there was one. Now, you mentioned Spud Murphy there. Yeah. Um, he's like the George Martin or something of, of Lancome. I mean, he, he clearly brought a lot to the, to the party. He has, yeah. He's, he's brought so much. Absolutely. His job though was what just to produce. Um, well, he we got him on board a few years ago as a sound engineer, as a live yeah. sound engineer, right? Um, and I suppose because we've been working with him so much, and even in terms of that remit, he's brought so much to the band as well, just discovering new ways, getting proper, you know, low end from the instruments in a live context, and uh, so it was just a given that we were going to get him on board for a recording and album. And when you say he, he's your live sound engineer, and is he in a sense? contributing more than just making sure the sound is right you know what I mean is he is he kind of playing that desk as well in the way always he's yeah. all over the desk yeah, yeah. yeah he's all over it, yeah he's it's a bit like Daniel Lanois in the studio I mean he, it's, it becomes another instrument uh, uh, absolutely yeah. yeah I think that's that's uh, it's the way he looked at it and I mean he, yeah he's come come on board with so many so many ideas and and of course, Rachel Hines, the organist, comes on sometimes, and that 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 gives it some kick, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's really it's it's something else being able to bring guest musicians on with us. It really adds so much, you know. It's, it's the danger fantastic. is though. The thing is, you need to watch the dynamics, though, don't you? Because you need to. You can't be. You, you, you can't be uh, giving away all your best stuff in the first song, you know. And then no, no, no. <laughs> and as well, yeah, it's hard kind of going back to the you know just the four of us after something like that as yeah. well. You know, it's. 
But stagecraft is something, I don't know whether you've thought about it or not, but the last time I saw you, I mean, I spent a lot of time just watching what you were doing and how you were doing it and who was playing what and how you traded instruments and so on. Um, there's a bit of choreography going on there too, isn't there? There is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're, like, think about it now, like, like all of us actually in the band have, like, three or four different instruments we're yeah. kind of switching between for each song, so you have to, I mean, it, you know, with that kind of controls what kind of set you're doing, which song can come after another one, different tunings and all that kind of stuff, so... Yeah, it's kind of taken us a good few years kind of to get on top of those things. Well, let's get back to talking about the songs. Um, you were talking about, just before the break there, about how these songs have lasted a long time and sometimes verses fall away because they don't mean anything anymore. So, the, the the popularity of Lancome at the moment and of the album, you know, some people have been saying, um, you know, it's because of the times we're living in that these songs have a renewed appeal. Do you think there's anything in that? Um, I think so. Yeah, I really do. Um, like so, I've wondered why a lot of times. Why is there, you know, a, a young generation getting into this kind of stuff now? You know, and I think there's kind of um, some some of it has to do with just a general dissatisfaction of contemporary life. You know, something. I think people, in some ways, yearn for something that's just a little bit more real than what's being handed out to them. Yeah. And maybe more mainstream parts of culture like whether that's music or art or whatever you know it's you know, people are searching for something that's just a bit deeper well there's there's two aspects to that i'd like to ask you about one is the songs you write yourselves and i'll ask you about that in a minute but first of all just in terms of, of the traditional songs um is it is it simply the case that these songs are about you know life love and death and that doesn't change is it is it as simple as that 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 there's a that a child ballad from back then will mean yeah. something, something to somebody nowadays. I think I think that the songs do quite often deal in very general themes, but I think the ones I mean there's a reason why people are drawn towards them, and I think maybe not that they're written in such a way, but that they've become something over the years that people can kind of look at, and it's it's almost like a mirror. You know, it's very easy to kind of graft them onto your own real life situations. You know, if you if you're like listening to a song about whatever like terrible emotional up wrenching situation that somebody's in it's very easy for you to think about people in your life and go, oh that's like what happened mm. that person or that, that's like the time this thing happened to me and I think that it's it's easy for people to latch on to these kind of the songs with their own experiences you know but a lot of the songs um, those old songs from that period well, they are murder ballads, a lot of them. And, yeah. uh, there's an awful lot of people thrown in wells and rivers and stabbed through the heart. And, you know, the, a, lot of them, murder counts, yeah, yeah. a lot of them do end in, end in tears. Multi yeah, multiple yeah. death count at the end, yeah. you know. Uh, and yet, you know, they're stories and you stick with them and sometimes you hear them sung again and as if you never heard them, as if you'd never heard it before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember Christy singing um, Lord Franklin one night. And again, it was like I'd never heard the song before. Yeah, they keep on giving those songs, you know. Yeah, picking up something new and no, there's so much to them. There really is. Yeah, you, you haven't encountered any kind of reticence to the I don't know the language of those songs because they are they're old. So the language is not necessarily the way we speak anymore. Does that matter? Yeah, I mean, they're you know, I think when you look at the very early versions of these songs, you know, maybe like something like the Wild Rover when that was first printed, then you really notice that um. You know, it was like it's in a different language altogether. It's like you know, like seventeenth century English, mm. um, and I mean, obviously, like I was saying before, when these songs have passed from person to person, they do get modernized. But even still, when we're singing them now, there are like turns of phrases 
things like that that you wouldn't necessarily use anymore but I mean for me that just kind of comes with the territory you know when you're singing these kind of songs do you, maybe sometimes you find crystallised you know with some just a strange sounding line or something that has never really changed over time but to me that just adds to the, the flavour of it you know it's all part of it And what about then the songs that you write yourself um, It's they all work together I mean yeah. I, would, I wouldn't necessarily you know on first listen go well that's an old song and that's a new song and what what but you've written songs yourselves that are very much about the world we're living in now, for sure. Uh, I started with uh, the song The Young People, which was which became very popular and got a lot of radio play. Mm. It's a beautiful song, but it's about a very tough subject. It's about suicide. Yeah. I mean, I, and I didn't realise that till I actually started listening, you know. Yeah. I, was, I was humming it long before I realised what it was about. Um, again, I'd say there's, a, there's an audience out there, as you say, who maybe one a bit more than what's been fed through the usual uh, cultural channel or pop cultural channels anyway. Mm. Um, when you sit down to write a song like that, um, do you just go for it? Do you think about the reaction? Um, I think it is that the reaction to a song isn't something that I would think about while writing. I mean, I know there was points when we were sitting down arranging the young people when it had been written already. Yeah, like after Dara had written it and I was thinking about how the reaction to that was going to be you know because mm. I mean it's obviously a subject that probably everybody in the country has been affected by in some way or another so you have to be careful about how you approach yeah. things like that you know it can be a very tough I guess that's subject, what I mean I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit clumsy with this but I suppose when it was a child bar- ballad from a very long time ago when people were getting murdered and de- it doesn't matter so much because it's a long time ago Yeah. then there are other songs you know they're about now yeah yeah different feel yeah, I think so. And it's it's almost as if, yeah, it's people know when it's they kind of treat it in a different way. If it is in a traditional song, it's not, doesn't feel, it's like it removed a few steps, you know. Yeah. I think so. And, um, you, you know, songs like The Granite Gaze and so on, and other songs that you've written that are very much, you know, uh, making statements about where we're at. Mm. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, I don't think it really helps. I think you can do it in the best way possible you can be as sensitive as you can be you know not wanting to kind of tread on the wrong people's toes but also you have to keep in mind okay this is my version of reality that I'm putting out there and it's just as valid as anybody else's so Mm. you know it's not something to kind of shrink back from I think you have a right to your own version of reality as much as anybody else yeah yeah. you know and when you get response from from fans say um and they tell you after a show what their favourite song is and all that. Is there? Would you notice any imbalance between the really old songs and the songs you've written yourselves? Or is there any particular um, prejudice there? No, and sometimes I'm quite surprised, you know, by the by the things that people come out with. You know, there might be, you know, there's always some songs on albums that, you know, just don't get mentioned in reviews or, or you know, right. things like that. So you kind, of end, you kind of end up getting this idea to yourself. You're like, oh, maybe they're kind of just the fillers, you know, maybe they're not the good songs. But then you might get somebody coming up one night and they'll specifically mention that one song yeah. and be like, yeah, that song means so much to me, you know, got me through a really hard time, whatever. And you're going, oh, well. So there I think go. it's, you know, it's, it seems like there's something for everybody <laughs> in a way, you know, this, you shouldn't discount something because everyone's not kind of shouting about it. But you know that, yeah. Your next choice is Planksty. Planksty, yeah. Did you see them in Vicar Street when they reformed? I saw them in the Point Depot, yeah, which was around the same. I think the year after that, maybe. Yeah, my uh, brother got me a ticket. I think that was two thousand and six. Um, so I'd been listening to Planksty from about 
I think I got a tape of them in like 98 or something like that. So a bit beforehand and I was, I I couldn't get over this tape. I was listening to them like 24-7. It was one of those albums that I just listened to every day for years. And um, I just, I never thought I'd get the chance to see them, see them play live. For me, it was just, you know, they were hadn't been around in so long. I was just done. But um, yeah, I was delighted when they got back together. I got a chance. And they certainly hadn't lost it. No, no, no way. They were magic. Thanks to you as I roved out. Ian Lynch with me in studio tonight. Ian from Lancome, picking all the tracks. It's, it's hard to beat that, isn't it? Oh, it's just, something else. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's so many years since I've heard it, and I think it's not. I just never get tired of it. Like, When did you hear that first, do you think? Um, I found the LP out my neighbour's back garden one rainy day. He was after getting rid of a load of LPs. He, um, he was a radio DJ, and I suppose every now and again he just got rid of a few boxes of records he didn't want anymore. And uh, The Well Below the Valley was one of them. Imagine throwing that out. I know, yeah. It's like gold. I still have that that record at home. The one he threw out. Um, it's little bits of the cardboard, kind of, you know, they're all kind of wobbly and warped and yeah. torn off. The record's fine. Still plays. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's interesting talking to you because you're, you're part of this group that's really riding a wave at the moment. And and your story is that this isn't your background at all. Yeah. So what happens when you're in the van, you're on tour and, and listening to the radio, I guess, or listening to tapes or cassettes or whatever the cassettes that dates me a bit. But listening to CDs, I guess, in the in, yeah. in, in, in the in the in the van. Um there are four of you. At least There's four of us, yeah. Um I mean I know the kind of stuff to play. I have to do have to temper it a little bit when we're in the van because, you know, if people are tired or whatever, I can't be playing like my favourite black metal. Uh, releases or whatever but um, like you know I, we'd all kind of be just playing stuff we're, we're into at the time but yeah definitely would have to keep in mind just the situation that I'm in it's all about context you it's, know? it's four o'clock in the morning outside uh, Utrecht yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe then I would play it yeah. <laughs> and you know speaking of the van you know as I get older it's the one part of being in a band that I really don't want you know yeah so how are you with all that because you guys are in the thick of it yeah, yeah. I mean, it really does take it out of you, you know. And I mean, sometimes I'm just surprised by how much people don't get that, you know. I said to somebody recently, I was like, uh, oh, you know, I'm just kind of a bit exhausted, you know, being on tour. And they were like, oh, what? You know what? You get up for two hours every night and sing songs. Yeah. That doesn't sound like work to me. And I go, no, you yeah. do not get it. There's so much more to it than that. Really, like, you know, you're spending all day traveling to, to get to this one thing. You have to get there at four o'clock, do a sound check. Uh, rush around trying to find some food to eat before the gig, and maybe not good food either. At that, no, you know, you usually, usually yeah. not. Yeah. Usually not. And yet, you know, we just heard Andy Irvine there, who seems who seems to love it. Yeah, he's on the road, never he's tires a, of the yeah. road. Road warrior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Some people seem to thrive. Yeah. In those circumstances. Well, I mean, I get that as well because sometimes you kind of become institutionalized, you know, because you're in the van so much, and then you get home and you're kind of you're a bit restless. You just want to hop straight back in, you know. A day or two later, you just want to hop in some other van and go somewhere else. You know, it's, it's a strange thing. I've been in uh, Atlanta, the airport in Atlanta, the big hub, uh, several times, and on every occasion, I've encountered the chieftains. <laughs> that's the truth they're, 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 they're always there it's like because they're on the way somewhere you know yeah yeah. God, it's extraordinary isn't it yeah but uh, but you guys are enjoying it I guess because there's there's a certain euphoria 
certainly from the audience's point of view, there's euphoria at your shows and you seem to be having a good time up there. Yeah, well, I've definitely, I think I've definitely settled into it, you know, like for a while there, I was just, was very unsure of it. And, you know, I suppose three or four years ago when things really started kind of taking off the first time, I kind of just didn't trust it, you know, because it happened so quickly. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'll give it, give it a few months, it will die away again and we'll be back to playing down the cobblestones or whatever, wherever, right, you know. Right. So I kind of just didn't have much time for it. But now I've kind of come to realise, no, this is a kind of sustainable thing for the moment anyway, and yeah. I've just kind of learned to enjoy it while it's happening, you know, so it feels good at the moment. Next choice, um, Imps of the Perverse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> rudimentary Peni. Yeah, what are we hearing here? So this is from, okay, Rudimentary Peni to me are probably my top, one of my top bands of all time. Um, definitely one of the kind of, like outstanding bands of the kind of early 80s UK anarcho-punk kind of scene and um, for me Rudimentary Pino were always far more interesting they had a lot more going on than a lot of the other bands at the time and this one particular album I think it was their their second big album but it's called Cacophony and it was all based on the life and works of H.P. Dovecraft it's a very unhinged album and um, the singer and writer of the music Nick Blinko I think he was hospitalised very soon after it was released but it's a very just one of those albums that again that I've just had I've been listening to it non-stop for the last 25 years there's always something new to find in it and this particular track I think is the centrepiece of the album Um, it's just this like twisted exposition on the work of H.P. Lovecraft and then a kind of a kind of manic instrumental piece afterwards I think we should be scared you might well be when you hear Howard Phillips Lovecraft, heaven knows, had a talent for writing which was of no mean proportion. Only what he did with his talent was a shame and a caution and an eldritch horror. If he'd only gotten the hell out of his aunt, his attic and obtained a job in a bookshop. 25 years you've been listening to that. Yeah. It, it, it explains everything. <laughs> it explains it all. The answers um, are becoming clear. Imps of the Perverse is a great name for a, for a, for a, for a track. And Lovecraft, I, I was just during the break, I mentioned something about him. And you said you've been to his house. Yeah. yeah you're serious about this. Yeah, yeah. Up in um, Providence, Rhode Island. I, we were there um, last year and I took the day off. I went to see all the sites. I saw like the house, two different houses where he lived. I saw some of the houses that were mentioned in his stories. I went to see his grave in the cemetery and. Yeah, I'm a big Lovecraft fan. I'm just glad the grave is in the cemetery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good place for the jail and <laughs> yeah, jailbreak. Right, there's going to be a jailbreak. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. When I listen to music like that and you tell me you've been listening to that for 25 years, are you? would you have gone to gigs by that type of band which would involve serious moshing up the front? Oh, yeah. That's your thing, is it? Well, I mean, the, the like heavy moshing wouldn't be my thing. I'm fair like a bit of dancing, you know, like... More of a dancer than a mosher. Yeah. <laughs> I was never tough enough to, you know, properly go moshing, but I've I've been in one or two in my time, yeah. yeah but when you say dancing, you're not talking about ABBA, are you? Or disco? Ah, no, no, but maybe like a few breakdancing moves now and again, you know. There you go. A backspin or you're, two. You're, you're, a, you're a deep, deep well. <laughs> you really are. Tell me about the the Irish scene there. So, it, yeah, it's, it's quite a vibrant scene, you know. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's It's it's a big scene. There's lots of bands. In, in Ireland? All over the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a really great festival in Limerick that goes on called the Siege of Limerick a few <laughs> times a year. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, great metal bands from all over the country. But I think Ireland, in no matter what scene you're looking at, I don't think it has the luxury of being like divided into subgenre after subgenre yeah. you know like in other countries you go somewhere and be like oh yeah the, the anarcho punk scene is over there and then there's a skinhead punk scene and there's a ska punk scene and yeah. you know 
in, in Ireland, I think for any scene like that, it's usually, and even sometimes across genres, you know, I went to a gig a few months ago um, in Bowes, in the, you know, the football stadium there, a DIY punk gig. There was one punk band playing, a metal band playing, and then there was like a noise band opening up. So, you know, I think that a lot of people are you know, into, into different genres of music and they all know each other. It's not, it's too, just not enough people for there to be all these little small kind of divided scenes in a lot of ways. I think it's I think it's particularly noticeable around groups like yourself. Um, when I think of people who I would consider, as Wikipedia would have it, associated acts, you know, people, mm. you know, you know, it, it, at your gig on um, in Vicar Street, I met one of the guys from Fontaine's DC was at the gig, and yet I would also think if you've been closely uh, connected with Lisa O'Neill, yeah, yeah, and you know, Rady's opening for Beak, yeah, you know, so uh, there's a whole there's a whole kind of community of people who come from different places apparently. Yeah. But are finding common ground in, in what you're at. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, you know, after you, you know, nobody's teenagers anymore, you know, people are just into music yeah. for being music, you know. I don't think people have any interest in keeping things at those tribal levels after you get past yeah. the age of 19 or whatever, you it's know. It's very true because it's not, it's a trap really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, absolutely, yeah. You get stuck in. But, uh, you know, when I looked at the audience at your at your gig as well, there were there were older people you'd expect to find at any trad gig. Mm. A lot of young people who, and you can't judge what people what people look like, but they didn't look like the kind of people you'd see at uh, trad gigs. Yeah, yeah, that must be uh, gratifying. It's fantastic, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of something we really noticed at our gigs, especially like in in Dublin. You know, over the last few years, that you just get these really interesting mixes of people. You know, when you look at two different people sitting beside each other, you know, you know, what's that like, you know, some crusty with tattoos on his face sitting beside some traditional singer or so, you know, where would you get that? You must be doing something right. Your next choice is uh, Portishead. This is uh, Machine Gun. Head Machine Gun Ian Lynch from Lancome picking all the tunes tonight. You've you've no prejudices against electronic music at all. I mean, you've, you you will incorporate this stuff if you possibly yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. I'll do. I'll do for it myself. Took me a while to come around though. Yeah, yeah. Is Same. I was definitely um, just intrinsically against all of it when I was very young. Yeah, but back you in the, back in the day, it was it did look like it was contrary to everything that you were told. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then I come to think of it, I hadn't really heard much electronic music, not the good stuff. Um, yeah. And what about, uh, you mentioned during the course of that we were talking about electronic music and, and technology and all the rest of it. A staff talking about technology. I mean, pipes, for all technology in the Ireland pipes really, isn't it, when you think it's about it? A decent bit of technology yeah, going on there, yeah. yeah. But uh, your next choice is Danny Brown and there'll be sampling involved here too. Yes. Now, is there anywhere that you would envisage that Lancome would not go, musically speaking? I mean, are you in any way a purist about what you do? Um, I mean, we've we've kept stuff pretty much acoustic up to now. You know, using acoustic mm. instruments. I know we used some. We used um, what you call a Mellotron. Yeah. On the last album, and a bit of like a Wurlitzer and stuff. So that was our first foray into using anything electronic. But I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to like make any grand pronouncements and cut ourselves mm. off from doing no. anything. So I just 
no, just leave it an open slate, you know. Yeah, but you also had a trombone on stage and things like yeah, that. I that never thought I'd see that happen. I was yeah. playing a tambourine. Yeah, one of the songs. I never yeah, thought I'd see that either. And, and it works. Yeah. And, and what do you call the that really plays the yoke on the floor yeah harmonium harmonium yeah. that's a terrific instrument oh yeah that's it? something that's become really a big staple of our setup now you know that really works yeah and then the big drum does the big drum have a name an orchestral bass drum right. is what it's known as yeah and so we have to rent them out from somewhere every time we want to use them it's kind of a nice the size of it anyway like where oh, would you leave that you need a separate you know, band for that you would <laughs> Um, no, but just, uh, just you know, knowing the interest that the four of you have, you know, and again, we talked earlier about the big hinterland musically that all of you would have, and you bring all that together. I mean, if you, if you have an open mind, there's all sorts of stuff that yeah. you could be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Possibly, you can go anywhere. Possibly will do. Yeah. Death metal album. I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Brown, tell me about Danny Brown. Danny Brown is a um, hip-hop artist from Philadelphia. And this song, Ain't It Funny, it's from an album called Atrocity Exhibition. And I just think it's really, really interesting hip hop. Like it, it sounds quite unusual to the stuff you're probably imagining. And um, the production on the album, I think that was second to none. It's, um, oh, I can't think of his name, some English producer anyway. But um, it's just really like good use of samples, really good low end in it. It's, yeah, it's banging. And are the samples, uh, are, are they, sometimes you hear a sample and it's pretty obvious what it is and sometimes it's it'll torture you for the rest of your days because you're going I know what that is but I can't oh, some website where you can look it up now yeah, you get your an answer straight away <laughs> it's brilliant that yeah. it's very very useful yeah. what's it called who sampled what or something like that or who sampled yeah, who yeah it's something like that yeah what what should we watch out for in here um, there's some nice um, like I think some trombone sample that's kind of the main part but what I love about this is that the bass really kicks in for the verses and then kind of takes a backseat for the chorus which is the oh, opposite way yeah. around but um, it just, just makes more for a really interesting track Okay Danny Braun Makes perfect sense, Ian. <laughs> it's coming together. Now, it is. Uh, Ian Lynch <laughs> from Lancome is with me tonight, picking all the tracks. That's Danny Brown, ain't it funny? But still, you know, I, 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 I know your band. I know Lancome. I know what they do on stage, and all the music you've chosen tonight makes makes sense to me. You know, it's not like I'm surprised by any of it. In a, yeah, in yeah. a sense, you know, when you look at the list, you go, well, you know, Iron Maiden and what you've got coming up next. You know, the Bug. Um, but it all, it's all. I can see where it all has impacted on what you're what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's not something that you even consciously think about, you know. But it's all, I suppose, just finds its way in somehow. Don't don't keep any of it out. No, no. I think once you stay true to whatever's going on inside you, you know, it's it's the trick. Don't put any filters on it. Just let it come out. But maybe don't play that one at four o'clock, four a.m. outside. <laughs> you trekked when really wants to get some sleep. Yeah, yeah. Not if you want to stay friends and keep your <laughs> band together. <laughs> now I want to get two more tracks in, so we'll fire ahead with your with your what will be your second last choice. Um, Flowdown, a name I've come across before. Um, this is the bug featuring Killer P and Flowdown. It's called a track called Skang. Skang, yeah. So, what's in store? Um, it's just really kind of dark, the kind of dubby grime stuff. Um, two two bad men talking about how they're going to murder you and describing your funeral afterwards. It's full on. Well, but, murder ballad. Yeah, murder ballad. There you go. Modern day murder ballad from yeah. the streets of London. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. the King, I love it. I love it. I would kick in your face. I would rob you. Oh, that could jump on it as well. the King. Shot start beat, it will be like when dog or each tribe. Mm -hmm. Skang from uh, the Bug featuring Killer P and Flo Dan. I tell you, Ian, you have excelled yourself there. <laughs> Uncle Tommy and Dad, tracks of the evening. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's great production of it. Oh, it's something else. There's yeah. a real bang of it. It yeah, really yeah. is. Like, incredible. Oh, you can feel it. Feel it in your chest. Yep. So, um, that, that that's you you know that that's a real London thing that 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 type of music that's developed been that developed sound, it's yeah. been developing for years. Mm. You've spent some time in London. I did, uh, yeah, yeah. What was that like for you? Because you know, I'm you were you're in a squat for a start, but was that was that was that a musical experience as well as everything else? I mean, it, it was in some ways, yeah. I mean, there was obviously what I was kind of like picking up the tin whistle while I was there, earning a few bob, and uh, but also like just yeah, big long nights going out to big squat parties and stuff where like I mean that's kind of hearing tracks like that really brings it back for me you know just standing in front of dirty big speakers and just feeling the just the now heft what, off it what, what years was that what period was that 19 around um, 2000 2001 yeah, so, so what kind of music would you have heard at squad parties because I'm thinking of the glory days when you would have heard you know reggae and punk music at the same parties yeah yeah. There was, there reggae was, and punk yeah, mi yeah. mixed and you get the clash and big audio dynamite and all that sort of scene you know mm. yeah I mean there, there was that definitely that mix going on you know there was like yeah like reggae punk dub kind of stuff mm. grime stuff like just uh, kind of techno I mean it's kind of sub-genres of those musics that I don't even know the name of everything all kinds of stuff yeah and uh, what took you out of it again what got you home Um, oh, I kind of just got sick of it I kind of got like tired of living that way, got tired of the people that I was around, got over it. You're glad you did it though. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, don't regret anything that I've ever done in life. But yeah, that was an amazing experience living over there. So different to you know, growing up in Dublin. Yeah, it's one thing, but uh, just geez, London, like, and back then as well. You know, what I mean, I think it, it, a lot of the squats have been evicted and stuff. Um, there's probably not as many like you know big parties and stuff going on. So you went from that situation, you came home, and is that when you went to UCD then? Um, it would have been like it was kind of about two or three years in between, but right. yeah. Do you miss the lecturing? I'd say you do. You know, I do. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, I definitely feel that there's large portions of my brain that just aren't being used <laughs> with what I'm doing now. You know, it's definitely stuff kind of just like what you call it with muscles atrophy or yeah. I don't know. Um, don't yeah. do it during a gig, whatever you do. No, no. <laughs> Although I noticed uh, Rady made the point about uh, uh, you just done a version of the Rocky Road to Dublin, Dublin, and Dublin. she mentioned Dublin, and you were able to explain. What did you say that night about du Dublin? Oh, like, I was talking about the epenthetic vowel. Yeah, yeah, it's a, like a, a strong mark of Hiberno English. Um, the epenthetic vowel. So instead of saying film, we say like film, yeah. things like that. You know, it's just it's the other way. And what's that? What's here. it called again? The, the epenthetic vowel. Epenthetic. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, I'm aware of the, the the thing, but I didn't yeah, know the word for it. Yeah, the vowel that comes in between two Epen consonants. That epenthetic vowel. Yeah, double in film. Yeah, perfect. There you See, go. people think they learn nothing listening to radio. Ah, we days learn today. We've one more song to go in. Um, I want to thank you for coming in tonight and for being so generous with your time and introducing a, a bunch of great music onto the show and into my life. I'm going to be listening to Skang the whole way home. Amazing. For um, sure. Well, thanks for indulging me. And uh, and uh, every good wish to uh, your pals in Lancome. Long may it continue. 
And uh, what's your last choice? The last choice of the night is um, Dead Dog in an Alleyway by Richard Dawson. It's from his latest album, 2020. I think it was, I think it was really played Richard Dawson on this program. Some years ago, it was the first time I'd, I'd heard of him. And since then, you know, um, I've come across him a bit more. And mm. wh- how would you describe what Richard Dawson's approach to music is? I mean, he's a folk singer, yep. But... I think he's so much more than that yeah. as well. He really is. To me, he's like a songwriter on a visionary level. Like he's up there with McGowan or somewhere like that or somebody like that. Um, he, you know, we can imagine he's one of these people. You can almost imagine that the song comes to him just in one, there it is, the song's in his head and he has the sounds and the smells of the situation he's experiencing and he just is able to just get it down. And like it's kind of crooked and twisted. and It's crooked and twisted and there's things thrown in to kind of throw you off and it's kind of off kilter. And But it's, I mean, the man just has, I think, amazing musicianship. It's very kind of left the field, but it's, it's just something. I've never heard anybody like him. Ian Lynch, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.